Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter number one uh, this morning. You know, as we're getting started, we're doing a little sermon series, and I'm calling it a redneck Christmas. Amen. You maybe you're wondering now, why are we calling it a redneck Christmas? And well, because you're here. Amen. <laughs> because if you live in West Tennessee, we've got a little bit of redneck in us. We'll talk about that more than that in just a second. One of the cool things, when you think about the stories, uh, and the uh, children's church, you are dismissed. I'm sorry. Pre-K through second grade. Give the kids a hand as they go. Look at all those kids. Good looking bunch of kids. Amen. All right, guys, uh, but as we look at the, the Gospels, we, we kind of take it for granted that we've got four stories in our Bible uh, about the life of Jesus. They tell the same story, but they emphasize different things. You know, for instance, Mark and John, uh, they begin, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John begin with the ministry of John the Baptist, and they don't say anything about the birth of Christ. Uh, Luke begins with the birth announcement of John the Baptist and then tells about the birth of Christ. But Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, doesn't begin with a story at all like the rest of them. It begins with a genealogy. As a matter of fact, if you'd never read the book of Matthew before, if you opened it up to read it, you might be discouraged because as soon as you open it up, it's a bunch of names that are hard to say, and they begot something, begotten, 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 begot, on and on. Eventually, Matthew gets to the Christmas story, but it starts like this. Matthew chapter number one, look at verse number one in your Bible. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And he goes on and on and on from there. And he finally, he starts with Abraham and goes all the way up to Jesus. Now, why would he do that? Why would Matthew start with a genealogy? Well, one of the reasons why Matthew would start with a genealogy is simply this, because Matthew was written for Jewish believers, to the Jews. And so any Jewish person that knew anything about uh, the coming Messiah and the prophecies about the Messiah, any Jewish person would expect the Messiah to be born in the family of King David. He would have to be in the lineage of King David. God promised David that his descendants would be on the throne. So the Messiah has to be from David. So that's one of the reasons why Matthew uh, gives us the genealogy that he's given uh, to us. But then he does something that's weird that I really want to draw your attention to this morning that's different. Uh, back in his time, um, women weren't very well thought of, right? A, a, a lady's testimony didn't count in court. A woman couldn't even testify. They didn't think much of them. And you wouldn't ever see a woman's name in a ge genealogy in Matthew's day like we see here in the Bible. But Matthew throws in a handful of women, four of them. And not only does he throw in women, he also seems to pause and to emphasize people that you would probably be tempted to leave out if it was your family tree, okay? And, it's, and especially if you're making the case for Jesus being the Messiah, these are not the people that you would include in the list. You know what I'm talking about. People like your crazy Uncle Ed or your Nana who dipped rooster snuff and can whoop paw paw pretty good. 
But Matthew, he just leaves everybody in. And here's what's fascinating. Now, in ancient times, if somebody was going to tell their family history, their genealogy, some kind of famous general or admiral or or emperor or king, generally speaking, what they would do is they would hire somebody to tell their family history so everybody would know how great they are. And this historian who was getting paid would list all of the great, wonderful things and leave out the not-so-great things. Like if there were bad Battles that were won and victories, those would be included in the history, but all the defeats would kind of be skipped over if mentioned at all. And then as far as the descendants or the ancestors, the ones that were really good and did a lot of great things, they would be listed, but that knucklehead that never amounted to anything, he would just be conveniently left off the list. It's completely normal in Matthew's day for there to be gaps in genealogies uh, when they were presented. But the people who would write genealogies, the historians in that day, their agenda was always to make the person that they were talking about look as good as possible. And there's two reasons for that. Number one, that's what they're getting paid for. Number two, they wanted to keep their head. Good motivation, okay? Good, solid motivation. But when we come to the story of Jesus, when we come to his genealogy here in Matthew, Matthew goes completely against everything that was normal in that day, and he does the opposite. So opposite, just to be honest, if you were alive in Matthew's day, you might see this genealogy as a little bit offensive. You would like, man, he's taking stabs at this guy. Matthew highlights the people that we would skip. And a list of men, I don't know where, includes, again, four women, two of which he would have been better off excluding. Three of them weren't even Jewish. These are Gentiles. And he skipped people like Sarah and Rebecca. Matthew clearly goes out of his way to say, oh, yeah, by the way, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, isn't even 100% Jewish. He's clearly saying here that Jewish is of mixed race descent. That's what he's saying when he's given this genealogy. And that would not have helped his case with Jewish people in Matthew's day at all. And so it's almost like Matthew's making a point. Look at verse number three. It says, Judah begot Perez and and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar, I don't know if you know her story or not. You can look her up, find her in Genesis later on. I'm not going to go into all the details right now. But Tamar's story, I describe it with one word. Icky. Icky. I mean, it's an icky story, right? I mean, it is just, ugh. It's very icky. There was no reason for Matthew to mention icky Tamar. There's no point. He could have just stuck with the men. Everything was going fine. And then he throws her name in. And then look at, look at the last part of verse 3. And Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Simon. Simon begot Boaz by Rahab. And there Matthew goes again. Rahab. Now all of my Sunday school people, uh, Rahab had a nickname, didn't she? It was what? Rahab the harlot. Harlot, some more y'all need to come to Sunday school. Rahab the harp. We had a guy in the first service. I said, Rahab had a nickname. What was her nickname? And I said, Rahab. And he said, the Arab. No. 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 Just because it rhymes doesn't mean it's true, okay? She was known as Rahab the harlot. Matter of fact, someday when you're with your children in heaven and you see Rahab coming, don't say, hey, there's Rahab the harlot. It's not nice. Call her Rahab, Ahab, no, Arab. Uh, Call her Rahab the mother of Boaz or something like that. Look at verse number five. 
But again, if your nickname, everybody calls you a harlot, it's not the kind of person you're going to mention on the genealogy. Verse 5, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth, that's a good one, right? Ruth is awesome. Ruth is great. She's one of my favorite uh, Bible characters. She's even got her own book named after her. But uh, Ruth ain't Jewish. Okay? She's not Jewish. Does not help Jesus' case at all. So if you're in Matthew's day and you're hearing about Ruth, you're like, yeah, she wasn't Jewish. Now look at verse number five. The last part of that, Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David the king. And you're almost, honestly, from that day, you'd be like, good. We got to David. Let's just stop. Put on the brakes. Why don't we stop right there? And then Matthew's like, nope. Look at verse six. So David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. By her, who I won't even mention her name, but we all know who she is, don't we? Bathsheba. By her, and, like, and he knew what he was doing. When he wrote that, that Jewish reader is going to Bathsheba, right? Now, Matthew basically spells out the one thing that David wishes everybody would forget. The one thing that David wishes could just be wiped away. That's what Matthew puts in Jesus' uh, genealogy. The fact that he had an affair with Bathsheba and then had one of his best friends, Bathsheba's husband, killed, basically. Right? I mean, and here's Matthew just spilling the beans in Jesus' genealogy. Do you have a friend like that? I do. Friends that uh, their favorite stories are all stories where you look stupid. And, any, like, if you're, and if you're with somebody that doesn't know your friend, you're almost like, oh, man, here we go. <laughs> right? They know you as Brother Marcus, and they know you as High School Marcus. Amen? Hey, let me tell you what he did one time. Shut up. So why is Matthew doing this? What's the deal? What's the reason? Not only does he throw all these women in, but uh, there, uh, leaves out a lot, of the awesome, Sarah, a lot of the awesome women that he could have thrown in. He doesn't. There's other amazing, incredible women in the genealogy of Jesus. He just leaves out. And he just throws in some people, leaves out other people. It seems like Matthew is intent on highlighting all of the sin. All of the sinners. Because, and why would he do that? Well, because Matthew had spent three years with Jesus. He saw uh, uh, Jesus and heard Jesus teach. He saw Jesus die on the cross. Matthew looked into an empty tomb, and he knew that all these shady, redneck, sinful characters with all of their baggage and their issues and their sin and their embarrassing stories, Matthew knew that they were the point of the story that he was about to tell. These people are the point. Write this down. Take some notes this morning. That Jesus came for sinners and Jesus came from sinners. Now, let me clarify. Fully God and fully man. We know that Jesus was born without sin, born of a virgin, right? His heavenly father. We get that. Fully God, fully man. The fully man side of Jesus came from sinners. Sinful people. You just read, I just gave you a, just the, the Cliff Notes versions of his genealogy there, just talking about a few different women. Matthew knew that the Christmas story was about light coming into darkness, about grace doing what law never could. Uh, this story is about forgiveness in a world full of condemnation. And the other thing I think that Matthew knew, and Matthew understand, and you'll, you'll get this in just a moment when we talk about Matthew's story, but Matthew understood that Jesus came from, for sinners and Jesus came from sinners. He recognized that was his story. Write this down. This is our story. That Jesus came for sinners, from sinners. That's our story. Why? 
because we're sinners. And by the way, your family tree isn't perfect either. Amen. I mean, it's, it's not. And, and if you, you know, just stick around after, we'll tell you all about it. Amen. Our family trees aren't perfect and we're not perfect either. This is our story that Jesus came for sinners like me. And Jesus in his family tree, he's got people like my people and people like me in his story. Again, fully God and fully man, but the fully man side came from sinful people. It's our story. Matthew understood this. People like Rahab, the harlot, and Tamar and Bathsheba, these are Matthew's people. These are people that he understood. These, this is his crowd. Later on in Matthew's gospel, uh, he talks about uh, when Jesus came to Capernaum at the northern, uh, northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had just crossed the lake and some guys brought a paralyzed man to him on a tarp. Right? And they bring a paralyzed, they want Jesus to heal him. And so what does Jesus do? He never does what you think he's going to do. So he tells this man, you know, hey, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. In which the man's thinking, great, but I can't walk. We came here for healing, right? But Jesus said, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. And so the Pharisees, which are always telling Jesus around, the legalists, the, the religious, always following around, looking for something to talk about. And so when they see that Jesus tells this man, hey, your sins are forgiven, they go, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And here this guy is saying that he's forgiving sins. And look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said, I'm about to prove to you I can forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. It's amazing. I mean, that's incredible. And that really happened. And then, that's when Jesus meets Matthew right after this. Look at uh, verse number 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Okay, Matthew was a tax collector, the most hated people in all of Israel. Okay, I mean, they were, tax collectors were more hated than Georgia fans hate Alabama fans this morning. Amen. They hated them. The Romans imposed an income tax, a land tax, wine, grain, fruit, boundary, road, bridge, harbor, wheel, any other kind of tax they can make up. They imposed taxes on these people. Does that sound familiar, by the way? And what they would do is they would sell the rights to collect taxes. So you could purchase the right to be the tax collector, and it would last for five years. So you would purchase the right to collect taxes. And so the compensation for you collecting taxes is that you get to raise the taxes to whatever you want to to compensate yourself for all of that time and trouble to go and collect taxes. In the ancient world, there's stories of people, you know, they've paid all their taxes and they're just going down the road and the tax collector's walking by and he's like, oh, that's 10 denarii for wheels. Just making things up. Right? These guys were hated, man. They were despised. And many of the Jewish people, they would uh, purchase uh, this right to be a tax collector. And they were absolutely just hated and despised. They were basically using Rome's authority to steal from their own people. They were licensed robbers. They were excluded in every kind of way from religious life. If a, and that day, pretend like we were back there in Matthew's day, if a tax collector walked in that door, we'd throw him out or we'd all walk out. 
They hated tax collectors. This was betraying your nation, betraying your God, betraying your family. In fact, you, if you've read much of Scripture, you've noticed that there's like these two categories in the New Testament that are always coming up. Two of them, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and tax collecting was so bad that they pulled it out and made it separate. You know, you got harlots and prostitutes and thieves and liars and immoral people and tax collectors. That's how bad they were looked at. Completely separate category of sin above and beyond everything else. And that's who Matthew is, man. He's this embarrassment to his family. He's ostracized from religious life. He couldn't go in the synagogue. He, he was ceremonially unclean. He could never go to the temple and worship God. His only friends were other tax collectors and sinners. And here he is. He's got his tax collecting booth set up, ripping people off because that's what tax collectors did. Rip people off. He's set up and he's doing it. And here comes Jesus. And it says that Jesus saw Matthew. That word saw in the original language in the Greek, it doesn't mean like, you know, like, oh, I saw, I see you over there. It meant that he, he stared at Matthew intently. You know what I'm saying? Like a man, like, oh, I see you and I'm coming. And so here's Matthew. He looks up. Here's coming Jesus, the picture of righteousness, holiness personified, God, God in bod, walking towards him, eyes locked on Matthew, who's busy ripping people off. And there is no telling what Matthew thought or felt in that moment, man. Right? I mean, what was Matthew, what could have Matthew have been thinking? Right? Here comes Jesus and the disciples. And I promise you, no, no matter how Jesus' face might have looked towards Matthew at that moment, the disciples' faces weren't good. I promise you, the disciples hated Matthew. They knew who he was, they knew what he was doing. And so Matthew has to be sitting there. These guys are going to spit at me, sneer at me, call me names like everybody else does. You know, because Matthew's. He's like the worst, right? We're not supposed to say who the worst is, but it's Matthew. He's the worst. And then Jesus walks up, verse 9, look at this. And he says, follow me, follow me. I don't know what Matthew was expecting. Let me talk West Tennessee. That ain't it. And, and, I, and the disciples, and I, especially Peter, but you know the disciples are like, you've got to be kidding me, man. It's hard enough being Jesus' disciple everywhere we go. Got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these people wearing us out 24-7. Now you want to saddle us up with a tax collector? He's the worst. Verse 9, look at it. It says, so he arose and followed him. And guess where they went? They went to Matthew's house. And you know big mouth Peter, the disciple, the apostle Peter, you know he flapped his gums the whole way. He's never been able to keep his mouth shut a day in his life. You know anybody like that? And, and you know, Peter, you know, he's, if, if nothing else, he's going, well, I'm going over there, oh, tax collector's house, I'm going over here, and that what we're going to eat with a tax collector? Like, you have lost your mind. You have lost your mind, Jesus. And then Matthew's inviting all these other people, these other tax collectors and sinners to join. He's throwing a party for Jesus. And when the Pharisees see this, they're confused because nobody would do this. Nobody. Nobody, nobody. Matter of fact, here's what happened. Like, say, the, the, the meal's over here. I promise you the Pharisees were all the way over here. And they're like, will you look at that? 
Who does he think he is? And matter of fact, I picture like, you know, they called to the disciples, probably Peter, because, you know, he was the most unhappiest in the group. Look at this next slide. Look what they asked. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And again, I promise you, they were a good distance away because they weren't even going to come close. Basically, what they're saying is we don't understand this Jesus, right? On one hand, Jesus is all about the righteousness of God, the goodness of God, and and he seems to want to uphold the law of God. And yet, he's in there getting tax collector cooties. What's up with that? Why is he hanging out with these sinners? Look at verse 12. And when Jesus heard, by the way, he always hears. Have you noticed that? He always hears. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, at which point is it shocking to me when I read this again, just this, just Marcus reading the Bible, man, you read it your way and I'll read it my way. But when I read it, I'm, I'm putting myself there. I think I would get offended. Right? Those who are well have no need of a physician. You calling me sick, man? Why do I have to be sick? You know, what are you saying? But that's not what happened. Because in reality, the truth is uh, they weren't offended at all. Because most of the time, look at this next slide. Write this down. People who are far from God know that they're far from God. Most of the time, when people are far from God, they know that they are far from God. Didn't you know before you got saved? Didn't you realize that you were far from God? And that you needed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? When you were far from God, you knew it. Most people know when they're far from God. There's some of you here this morning, you know it right now. You know right now that you are far from God. And maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe if I got in your grill a little bit and like judged you and like, and you know, you tax collector and you're far from God. And you, maybe you'll get offended and mad and I don't know, maybe you're mad already. And so, uh, what, what, what does that joke? Get a cape so you can be super mad. Amen. And so, um, but what I'm saying though is, and maybe you would get mad and maybe you would leave and you drive and that bald headed preacher and he's, and I, and it's, you know, judging me. He's so judgy, judgy with his judgy. And then you would leave. But let me tell you something. When your car pulled in the driveway, whether you'd ever say it or not, in your heart, you know whether or not you're far from God. You don't need me to tell you. You know that you're far from God. And those of you that are saved, before you got saved, you knew I'm far from God. And that's true of them as well. And Matthew knew. Look what Jesus said in verse 13. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire, and he's he's quoting from the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's saying, I didn't come for perfect people. I didn't come for people who think they're perfect. I came for sinners and not for the righteous. And that wasn't offensive to Matthew. Matthew wasn't like, hey, man, who are you calling a sinner? Matthew knew that he was a sinner. And Jesus came for sinners. And I think that when Matthew considered and thought about his own story with Jesus and he's writing the genealogy and he realized that to to include the outcast, the sinful, right? Those who the world didn't care about was only natural in telling the story of Jesus. It's the whole thing. Without Tamars and and Bathshebas and 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 Rahabs, uh, the gospel message isn't the same. 
He had seen Jesus live out this mission. And Matthew understood probably better than any of the other four gospel writers. Write this down. That the Christmas story is about God drawing near to those who had drawn away. The Christmas, the whole thing is about God drawing near to people that were far away. It's about God loving people that nobody else loved. Caring about people nobody else cared about. After Matthew spent three years with Jesus, here's what he discovered. That when Jesus came, he changed everything. Because the reason why somebody, a tax collector like Matthew, had drawn away from God is because of the mentality in his day. And so many of his friends had to have felt the same way is because the thinking was like this. The thinking was this. If I'm going to come to God, it's going to be based on me giving God something. It's going to be based on what I do. If I'm going to have a right relationship with God, I've got to be right. I have to have something to give God. I've got to sacrifice something for God, right? Or maybe it's me not doing something. The reason why I've drawn away from God is because I, I know I don't have anything to give. I'm a tax collector. I'm a crook. I'm the worst. I don't have anything to give. Therefore, I can't come to God. I have nothing to offer. And the only way God will ever take me seriously is if I have something to bring to the table. But Matthew, after being with Jesus for three years, Matthew, after watching Jesus go to the cross, the empty tomb, all of that, knew that the, everything had changed. That from now on, if him, a sinner, a tax collector, was going to approach God, it wasn't going to be based on what he did. It was going to be based on what Jesus did. That that was the only thing that could help. That was the only. See, we think that we're giving our righteousness to God as a gift. God gave us his righteousness. And it's a gift. You don't bring anything to the table. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. Right? It's the gift of God. And he's given it to us as a gift. But we think we've got to bring something. We've got to have something to give God, to prove something to God that somehow we're valuable or worthy. God gives us the gift of righteousness. And the Christmas story is how God gave the gift of righteousness to people that had nothing to offer. And don't you know that as Ma I think as Matthew wrote that, I think he laughed when he's thinking about some of these people. Because this is the point of the story. The genealogy is the whole point of the story that he's about to tell. So here's what, in the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of these people. But some, some of them you may know, some of them you may not know. But why at Christmas are we zeroing in on this genealogy of Jesus? Well, because when the angel announced that Jesus was coming, look in your notes, Luke 2.11. He said, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. What's a Savior for? To save you from your sins. Jesus came for sinners. That's the point of Christmas, that God gave us a Savior. We needed a Savior. We're not doing favors for God. God is being merciful and graceful for us. And the genealogy is, the, I'm telling you, if you study that, is the best place to see how God provides for us. And so here's my goal, man, for you, uh, whatever, however you find yourself this morning, if there's anything in you, you believe that you're standing before God, your salvation is in any way based off of what you do. 
and you're trying to give to God your behavior, your good works, right? I go to church, I give money, I do things, and you think somehow those things make you right before God, that you'll realize that that's not what it's about. That's never been the answer, that it's always been what Jesus has done for you, the gift he is giving you. The truth is you don't even have anything to put on the table. You're a sinner, just like Matthew. Maybe worse. You have nothing to give. You have no present to bring. And anything that you could bring to the table will never measure up to the matchless grace that God offers us. The fact is that when we failed, he didn't. When we quit, he never did. When we're afraid, he gave us his strength. And when we come to God, it's not based on our righteousness, but on God's righteousness. When we come to God, it's not based on our lack of righteousness. We, we stink, man. <laughs> we reek with sin. You can't bring righteousness to God. You're a sinner. You have nothing to bring to the table. It's all about what the gift that he is giving us. Have you come to him like that? Have you come to him based on what Jesus has done for you? Have you realized that you're sick and that you need a doctor? Have you realized that you're a sinner and that you need a savior? That's the only way to come. That's the only thing that'll work. That's why Jesus was born of a virgin, born in that manger and lived that life and died that death so that he can give you the gift of his righteousness. And that's why he was born in a redneck family, so that he could prove he's just like you and just like me. The only difference is where I sinned, he didn't. Where I failed, he never did. While I fell short, he went the distance. And he did it for me. And he did it for you. I hope you have that gift because that's the story of Christmas. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We, th we thank you for Matthew and this awesome, true genealogy that he gives us in Scripture, warts and all. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you that you came to us when we had no chance of coming to you. Lord, we we're so grateful that you came for sinners, Lord, because we're sinners. Thank you. 